Well, hello, Roaring Twenties Radio. I'm Catherine Williams, and this is a page from the beginning of Chapter 4 of my debut novel, The Ormering Tide, published on Wrecking Ball Press. Here we go. Maman was worrying her thumb across her chin. The brothers had not been home for such a long time. She didn't know where they were, and it was getting towards dusk. I can feel something's not quite right tonight, she said, rubbing the sides of her hips as if that is where the feeling was. I don't know what it is, but there's a darkness creeping in faster than the night into this kitchen. Her fretting started on other things in the kitchen as she spoke. Plates were lifted onto their shelves, crumbs brushed with their hand into the other hand and tipped into the sink. She turned and looked at me. Maman had these moments. Everyone felt it was a bit dramatic, the way she could be. Like an actress had come to play our mother, but gone a bit over the top. But it was as real as any other ailment she got. She really felt these things deep inside her. When bad thoughts happened, it was as if she had been struck by lightning or bitten by an animal or cut by a thorn. The bad thoughts got worse this time of year, as summer slid into autumn, nights drawing in, her thoughts became longer shadows stretching out fears of dark lost pools. She had an invisible string to her children, it could let out like a spider's web, turn corners and not back on itself, but if she ever felt it slacken, she knew it would take over, it would cloud her. Maman's thread had broken a few years before me, when the baby that had been inside her came out dead. I heard them talking about it. That's how I know. I shouldn't have been listening, but I do, over and over, seduced by their soft words to each other. Pops's silent way is a road for Maman's words. Maman always tells us that talking things through tidied a mind. But she shook and her voice trembled that night as I listened in. Only with the steady silent road the pops laid out for her did the words eventually roll out, like her tears. I had tiptoed away, hearing her crying, muffled into pop's shoulder. I had gone back to my room and hugged the pillow on my bed. Bugger, that's too strong, cause it is 
till summertime Out to the beach to his boat could I join him? No, this time it was me Sunburn in the third degree Now the calendar's just one page Of course I am excited Tonight's the night I've set my mind Not to do too much about it to Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. If you want to tweet along and you like what you're hearing, you'll find us on Instagram, Roaring Twenties Radio, and also on, on Twitter as well, at Roaring Twenties Radio. The 20 is a number two and an O, and then the S is like a little S, so Roaring Twenties Radio. So do tweet along and do come and follow us and uh, let us know any feedback, what you think about the show. Now I am here in the studio with Amma Rose and Shimen Suleiman, who's just read beautifully from The Good Immigrant. I cannot believe it's been five years. It's absolutely nuts. I can't, I, I, you know, when I, was, when I was reading through it and I was trying to find like an extract that I wanted to read, it, it's really, really interesting because there's so much of it that I felt like, oh, I wouldn't have said that like that. Oh, I didn't like that sentence. Um, which goes to show just how much time has actually passed. And it's really scary because I don't feel like it's been five years and I don't know where this time has gone. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where the time has gone. I'm, I'm the same. My essay in there is shade. And I think I would definitely rewrite some bits in my essay differently now. Now we're on this side of Brexit. Now we're mm. on this side of a pandemic. Um, it's quite extraordinary, actually. Yeah, so 2016, 
The Good Immigrant was published. Yeah. What did it achieve? Where did we go? What happened to it? Give us a quick rundown if someone's been doesn't know what The Good Immigrant is. Uh, okay, so how did it how did it come about? It was a conversation between friends um, about how there wasn't enough uh, representation in publishing. Uh, as well as conversations around immigrants and immigration and the fact that you're only really accepted when you're the good immigrant, yeah. when you win an Olympic award or you scale <laughs> a wall to save a child in France yeah. um, and then you're a superhero. And you've got to jump through these in, insane hoops uh, to to become one of the good ones and the rest of us are bad or just completely erased from the narrative. And... How did we do it? We talked about, um, we went to Unbound and we um, managed to raise funds for it within, it was three days, wasn't it? Yeah, it was It was ready to go. Three days, we had more than enough money to yeah. publish it. And it's amazing. Uh, yeah, it was People just, power. It, absolutely. And, and also, it's kind of, it's really bittersweet for me because obviously I'm so happy that the book has done so well and has resonated with so many people and that's really important but where it's really sad for me is the fact that that many people especially people of color and kids of immigrants were so starved for content and so starved to see themselves in books in publishing or just in the media in general that everyone just sort of latched onto this book and it's amazing that we could do that and that we provided that and we're a part of that journey Mm. and I'm so proud of that and so proud of like all of us I mean it did did incredibly it was a number one bestseller it it sparked loads of conversations and loads of other books and other projects that were mirroring and, and, and you know building on that conversation. Absolutely there's so many anthologies that have followed not just anthologies like just you know books in their own right I mean, it's it yeah, it's just been it's been an astonishing project, and I think it's given people the voice and the safety and the platform, and 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 it's also shown publishing and the media that actually this idea that oh there isn't an audience for it, it's like there is an audience for it, like mm. we're here, we've always been here. That's such a myth, the lack of audience right. thing. I mean, across the board, I remember you've just reminded me of something I wrote, totally unrelated about again tapping into other cultures and um and i was like oh you know what's this new popularity and then like this is one of the most popular things we do this exhibition it's just that the establishment never wants to say that it's popular of course yeah of course a complete erasure yeah i mean the good immigrant just smashed it yeah. it really did yeah. i remember it was just on just completely just trending all over all social media um, and that was this time five years ago and little did we know i mean we were uh, um i wouldn't like to use the word upset but we were passionate about it we wanted to speak up we wanted to yeah maybe upset is all right to use yeah. we were we were we wanted to you know 21 of us got together under nikesh um guiding us like a shepherd like herding cats yeah <laughs> like bless him for all the hard work he did yeah. to sort of keep us all on track and get that to happen um but yeah we had no idea in 2016 what would be coming over the next five years and i'm, I'm really like i, I kind of it's like we put a flag in there in that year um, and and it's, it's, it's remarkable and exciting that they're going to be republishing it with a new cover, which is beautiful. It's like black yeah, it's and gorgeous. gold. Yeah. 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 It's I mean, it's, it's also quite scary that at that point we were like, oh, my God, everything is so bad. And now we're like, oh, my God, I missed five years ago. It was so much easier. Like, how did we get here? I know. I know. I'm quite curious about that moment in terms of um, I spoke to someone the other day and they didn't it's like 
the word platform now is again something that's become slightly kind of loaded but when you uh, especially as a writer and you're six, you, you're publishing stuff and you're, you're putting your opinion out there but when it comes to things like when I feel like when it comes to identity and erasure there are parts of yourself that across the board I think but particularly when it comes to race and background that people don't share in their writing and sometimes I found that I didn't realize I wasn't sharing something until someone said oh but what about this and what's it like to suddenly have someone go but I want to know about that for me personally it's quite interesting it's kind of almost like well that's mine you can't have that I give you everything else you can't have that but then once you share it it's out there and I wondered what to what's it what it's like to suddenly start sharing that part of yourself as a writer um yeah it's it's I mean I'm an oversharer in my writing anyway and I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that I have so I mean like like all of us you know it's like I, I have really complex issues with my identity which I think this year is the first year where I'm kind of chill about it but you know for the for the last however many years of my life has been a real like I don't know what I am everything's a big mess and I try the, the only time that I can work that out is through my writing so I actually kind of want to sit down and and that's the only place where I want to talk about my identity and overshare what I'm feeling because that's the process for me um and that's when I start to feel like I can understand who I am and then just sort of like put put that to bed um yeah i i think I, I think largely because i find it, I, it's it's weird it's like sometimes i feel like i'm writing to people that i know who don't know who don't understand something fundamental about me and it upsets me because i'm like we're friends or we're in a relationship why don't you know this thing about me like mm. how can i keep trying to explain this in the pub and sometimes i feel like when i sit down and i write an essay like that it's just so that I can hand it to them and go, here you go, this is like, this is it. So that I don't have to keep trying to kind of painfully explain myself, um, like in this dynamic. So yeah, I, I'm fine with oversharing yeah. in my writing, probably just in general, to be honest. Because <laughs> I find you, you're very vocal on, on social media. You really speak up for yourself and for others, not just uh, um, issues of race, but sometimes sexism, feminism. Sure. You're on that. You're there right in the front line and in the trenches. Um, I, you know, I'm, I really admire you. And you're so, to me, like probably one of the most courageous writers I know in that you really don't back down and speak up. Um, I think the thing that breaks my heart about all of this is how much beautiful work would be made mm. if we didn't have to spend so much energy yep. constantly repeating ourselves, constantly defending our space, constantly speaking up for, signing petitions for, marching for, trying to, you know, again, explain why one thing or another thing is offensive. I mean, would you like to sort of talk about that a bit? I mean, the energy that is, is spent is insane. Oh, it's just it's awful, isn't it? And it, it, I mean, I had a really good friend of mine, uh, who you know as well as Poet Anthony Naxagori, and he said to me, so <laughs> he said to me, I read through your Twitter feed and I can't work out if you're really brave or really crazy. <laughs> 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 I was like, I, think, I don't know. Which, I was like, a little bit of both. Um, I, like, a lot of it is also because I just don't really have a, have a filter as well. And I don't like, 
more than anything i don't like seeing other people get picked on i don't like seeing other people in pain Mm -hmm. i find it easier when someone is mean to me on social media i get it all the time i get like loads of like death threats rape threats abuse um you know you're a ugly turkish cockroach and all the rest of it and it it happens it happens Mm. really frequently and in a way i find that no, I definitely find that easier. I find that easier to deal with than I do when I see it happening to someone else. I can laugh it off, which is either which is a combination of a defence mechanism and a bizarre sense of humour. Yeah. But I can't laugh it off when I see someone else that yeah. happening to someone else. And there's that other thing as well, whereas a, a direct death or rape threat or direct racist comment directly you can sort of deal with it's when it's nicely glossed over mm. with a nice scone and cream and scone and smile mm-hmm. that I can't handle. Yeah. yeah. When it's more insidious. Yeah. Mm. Someone sending me something like direct and blunt. I'm like, Oh man, I feel so sorry for you. That's so pathetic. Um, and then I just thought, and then I ignore it and I get on with my day. But like you said, it's this insidious, like, Oh, nicely packaged. Yeah. Like all delicate, like, it's all rather lovely, but actually at the core of it, you're like that. That that's what's dangerous. That's yeah. what's really scary. And that's yeah. where that's where places uh, places like tokenism lives. That's mm-hmm. where places mm-hmm. like trying to look. You know, sometimes I I almost feel like being people are more worried about being called a racist than actually making sure they're not racist. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Does uh, that sound... Abs- no, 100%. Yeah. 100%. They put as much effort into not saying the racist thing and learning why it's racist as they do into defending themselves or trying... or saying the racist thing but then trying to, to, to get sort of... Accept, to be accepted for it. Just don't... Just, just learn or don't. Just own it also. Yeah. Just own it. I, in a way, I find being around right-wing people easier than being around or fake liberals because at least I know where I stand yeah. with like actual right wing or, or with racists like I, I kind of they, they own that and it does not, there's nothing that's going to surprise me but you have this group of people who are actually just there for the clout and it's fashionable to not to not to be an anti-racist and they're, they're not in it you know they're, and they're taking up space that's also the kind of person who'll explain to you ex- explain it break it down for you exactly what, exactly what you know and what you've been living with for your entire life exactly explain yeah. back to you and then you're and it's almost like so this is how i'm not abusing you exactly this is how i'm not standing in your way anymore do you know what that i had quite I don't, I don't know if i've said this before i had that i this really made me laugh when um somebody shall remain nameless i'm just reading a book all, all about my privilege <laughs> And it made me laugh oh, so Someone much. actually said that to you. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's all about, all about my privilege. And I was like, oh, OK. Oh, Bless it's you. just so cringe, if isn't it? If that's what you've taken away from it, I don't know what to say. Oh, that's just, yeah. And it, it's it's funny because it's always... I noticed that when I was living in New York, it used to happen quite a lot, where the, the, the people who, you know, the white liberals who sort of show up to be like yes you're right about all of these things suddenly the moment where you say something that they can see themselves in they're like well that you're off the mark with that one that one that one you're off the mark on it's like so everything else was 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 fine when when it was sort of glaringly about a trump supporter that was okay mm-hmm. but the second that you can relate to that you see yourself in that suddenly i don't know what i'm talking about the years of writing about this or lecturing about this or speaking studying this living it living it that suddenly it doesn't count 
that's the one time where I'm wrong mm. and that you know about racism more than I do because you saw yourself in that package. It's, yeah, that, that's, that's the shit that scares me more, actually. Mm. Mm. And um, Oh, I was just going to say, just in case anyone that's listening that's, that's, that, that is, you know, bombarded and is feeling picked on, what, what do they do? Like, what advice do you give? Like, how, how do you, where's the support? Who's supporting you? How, who saves you? Who looks after you and defends you? When you're being bombarded by, in, on social media. For example, yeah, yeah. Um... I think sometimes, well, just sort of logging out and I found that the easiest thing to do is to set up a time, like if you do want to read it, and I understand that because I think there's there's a side of all of us where even though it's very easy to go, oh, just don't, just don't read the comments, don't read below the line, like sometimes you sort of feel compelled to. And if you do, and you do know that you want to go through it and see what's happening, set up a time to meet up with friends, have them over, go to a bar and spend an hour going through it with them and either just trying to make light of it or ranting to each other about it and then put your phone away. Mm -hmm. um, so I either do that or I just or I just log out and I stay away for long enough that by the time I calm down and I come back, I don't actually need to read any of those comments anymore yeah and it's all kind of boiled down again yeah because that's the thing with twitter isn't it? it kind of things kind of boil up and then suddenly they disappear and someone's angry they're all angry about something else it's very very weird yeah yeah it, well or it doesn't well, go away or it doesn't go away <laughs> i'm wondering if you want to talk about the latest yeah, yeah absolutely it's, yeah it's fine i mean it's i'm appalled that it's still going on yes i am too um so yeah obviously you're, you're referring to the the kate clancy stuff um and the uh, book that I mean, it's just it's just an insane story. I don't even know where to start. Sort of essentially outed herself really by saying I didn't write these racist words. Yes. And then people screenshotted the words and they were like, "These are in your book." And I somehow got involved a day later, I guess, just commenting, not even on the book. I wasn't commenting on the book. I commented on the structure of, um. You know, the the lie is actually what fascinated me. The lie and how it was being used to target someone else. Yes, because then the person was then trolled because loads of people thought the person was lying. Yeah, yes. the re they thought the reviewer was lying. And also the fact that there were loads of like successful professional writers and industry people who were joining in. Pitching in without... And it's like, A, has anyone read the book? Has anyone who'd read the book would have read the words well the, what was really interesting was seeing lots of like well-established writers chipping in to go i've read the book and those words definitely aren't in there and it's <laughs> like i why are you all are you all drunk like what are you all doing like why are you all like hanging yourselves like this and for what and i think that's that's the thing that fascinated me about like you know take take clancy out of it take the you know the publishing out of it, it it's just as a structure of a certain type of, of, of white woman who positions herself as, as fragile and delicate and within that she's actually spinning a web of lies because there is a victim elsewhere and that is historical and that is what I was commenting on. I'm not particularly interested in, in, in one writer and, and, and her mates on Twitter. It was the fact that, and it had already started, it had already started to blow up by the time that I even commented on it. I wasn't ripping her book apart. As as all of the media have decided that she's the ripped her own there. book apart, she hasn't she? Because she's rewriting it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, that's that's precisely that. Um, but a lack of apology 
and a lack of contrition, it seems. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lack of apology from from absolutely everyone. And I think one of the things that hurt the most was having lots of white people in our industry talk over us. And there's not a single person who actually communicated directly, not one, with me, Manisha or Sunny, not one. And they would, they'd write the articles about us, they'd tweet about us, and then other white people would join in and they'd have the conversation, whether they agreed with each other or even if they disagreed with each other, they'd have the debate. And then myself, Sunny or Manisha would join the conversation and go, could you clarify this for me? Like, you're actually talking about me. What do you mean by this? And silence. They'd like remove us from the conversation and carry on replying to the other white people. And it, it just to be not only erased like that, but also commodified because you're making money writing articles about the three of us in the same way that Clancy made money commodifying people of colour to write about in her book anyway. So we don't exist. We're just we're we're just content. Mm. That's it. I'm not a real person, and it's honestly one of the most dehumanising degrading experiences of my life purely because it played so publicly like that and it's still going on now there's still people talking about it debating it people are still trolling you and talking over you and about you and not actually bothering to sort of ask you to write or speak which is why we had you on roaring 20s radio today actually yes because we wanted to hear your side because while digging through everything i couldn't find it yeah, there's no. Yeah. I mean, we haven't we been. Yeah. No, it's <laughs> it's true. We didn't. We no one gave us a, a right to reply. You know, and and why would they when they're changing the narrative of what's happened? Um, yeah, it's still going on. I don't know why it's going on. Still, I think partly Pullman. I think his really lovely comment likening us to what did he say would be better suited to being the critics of Clancy would be better suited to being an ISIS and the Taliban. Um, Charmed. That was such yeah. a weird comment. Why did he say that and choose those specific words like that? But it's not just um, it's not just a um, race in in the book. It's also the autistic author Dara mm. Mc, uh, uh, McAnulty. Yeah. yeah, he was um, seventeen year old. Yeah, and to to be described as jarring. I know the autistic people are jarring. I thought that was. I when yeah. I mean, I have a sister who has Williams syndrome, and I'm very protective about that and the as language be, we yeah. use and. I just, yeah, it also yeah. comes back to the idea of the good immigrant, doesn't it? Because it's she caveated, um, I'm hyperbolizing now, but she caveated it by saying, oh, I'm, but I've never claimed to be a good person. And it's, well, okay, well, lucky you, you don't, you don't have to seem good. Right. To be exactly. appreciated. Exactly. Yeah, and we're running out of time now. But thank you so much for sharing. No, no, it's yeah. And we've got a track that you've chosen yes. um, now. And yeah. we're going to end the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank no. you so Just much. Quickly, Shimen. before you go, what are you working on next? Yeah. What's coming next? What should we look out for? Uh, well, I've got two manuscripts that I need to, to get on with. I've only, the, thing, the interesting thing is, I've only just come back to the country after seven years. So I'm re establishing myself. And then all of this happened. So, um, but yeah, keep, keep an eye. There is there is stuff there is stuff coming out so just keep an eye on Twitter and Instagram when it's all sort of ready to be talked about. Wonderful, we Thank will you. be doing that. Thank you. Thank you.
man. It is important to me that my wife is what I desire her to be. This will require work from you. I have made you this list to help you become the best version of yourself that you can be. There is more beyond this. One, you are Earth. And like the Earth, it is your role to nurture and grow. Our relationship, our children, our home, these must be your first priority. At all times, at any cost. Two, I am the source from which you flourish. This is why you must create constant calm for me. An immaculate home. This is your domain. I expect order from my life and you must learn your place. Three, be sweet to everyone. Fragile, as flowers should be, always. Sweet, fragile things do not get angry for any reason. Four, be tender. Understand my needs and satisfy me without my asking. I seek a wife who knows how to soothe me the way water soothes a parched throat. Who knows how to be a feast when I am hungry. Her bounty must be vast. Five, you must be sacred. What falls from your lips must be holy. Forever forgiveness, forever faith in me. If you see my flaws, turn away. Pretend you saw nothing at all. Six, you are mine. You must believe in me as you would believe in God. Unflinchingly unfailingly. In turn, I will treat you like a goddess, pure and perfect. Seven, know my limits. Remember to stay away from the edge. Even goddesses know better than to cross their gods. Eight, never make me feel inadequate. I am the maker of all that you love and rely on. You are a victory dance now. A sun and a moon and all the stars because I want you to be. Nine. The earth nourishes her children and so must you. As their mother, you must always know what they need better than I do. 10. Stop burning so brightly. You are no forest fire. Forget the embers. Put aside your glowing voice. Learn to be the earth that you are. 
Dust the ashes out of your hair. Wear your skin softer. Be pretty. It is how I like you best. 11. Speak honestly, but not too honestly. Speak your truth, but not too loudly. Be yourself, but not so much that you stifle me. 12. Be a part of my story. I have carved this beautiful seat next to me just for you. All you have to do is make yourself fit. Come now, love. Stroke my hair. Kiss me and put your arms around me. Peonies and daffodils, your precious flowers wilt in. As they're falling leaf by leaf, don't you wish for some soil? But you have broken long ago that bowl of precious water. You have broken long ago that bowl. Dinner during the week of rage. Sunflower oil sizzles beneath potatoes and cauliflower in the frying pan. Tariq is eating Warannab standing up, gas mask round his neck and goggles strapped above his forehead. Water hits the fresh coriander between my fingers, pinning each small petal down against my flesh and you giggle about the lasers you picked up to shine in the eyes of the Darak when they come to beat us up again. Mischievous, I say. You limp to the lemon, rubber bullet wound in the back bend of your knee, tahini over each dish, salt, khamud, Tariq pours sugar in his snanei and we each damn fuck this government in turn and the oil has dried up. The garlic is cooked. I say, let's eat and I'll follow you to Martyr's Square. I get the words for lemon and will die mixed up. Hamud, Rahmud. You squeeze in a little more. As if I didn't add enough, the halloum crisped to crunch. A will-die pip lands on your plate. Sahtain. I am a professional optimist with pessimistic tendencies. I like long walks in my least favourite neighbourhoods. I hate spinach and wear my heart around a wreath. I am friend turned guest, turned memory, turned action figure. With all the right fingers on the wrong hand, holding the assumption that history is written in bold choices. I wrestle the voices in my head and hold gatherings to hear laughter in lieu of violence. Revolution led us here. The after party to a century's worth of tears where we toast to the turning of the tide. Where we circumnavigate the quiet in all its slanted gravity. 
perfect the syllable and split the weight of history between our tongues. Conversation is an ugly affair with beautiful consequences. Generations have grown grey playing at war, where everybody loses. Where everyone buries the name and all the chains that we came with still playing the same music. Isn't it beautiful when everyone learns the words to communal prayer? When everybody listens before dissolving into collateral rabbit holes, confusing science for sense, lecturing lacerations on the theory of blood, one man's physics is another man's fantasy. And therein lies the labyrinth. Where is the after ever after we asked for? Great grandchildren will visit our memory. Let's give them something to be proud of. What do we want? When do we want it? And they'll have their own answers. Now we're going to hear a bit of my conversation with curators of a show called Roaring Twenties, which is um, just left Kunsthaus Zurich and is coming to Guggenheim Bilbao. Um, hello and welcome to Roaring Twenties Radio. Um, thanks for joining me today. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Roaring Twenties, the exhibition which is come from Kunsthaus Zurich and is about to open in May at Guggenheim Bilbao. Um, when we came up with the concept for this show, we were trying to think about something that encapsulated the age and we couldn't think, we wanted it to be a bit of a play on words because of the political mood, because it's roaring as in fun, but it's also roaring as in there was, you know, going to a year and a half ago, there was already a lot of activism brewing pre-COVID and pre um, all the different um, issues that arose over the course of last year. So um, when I saw the show, I was like, I, 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 you know, I'm a critic as well. I have to know more. And so I just wanted to ask you both, could you tell me a bit about the idea behind the show and how it came about? I think Catherine can... Um can talk about this better because she started the exhibition and she spent a lot of time on the concept. Okay. Yeah, so, the, uh, so thanks a lot for, for making this conversation possible. It's uh, a great honor for me and Petra to that we like connect uh, people and uh, I mean have the opportunity to connect people and so on and also different countries and places. So actually the the idea for this show um, had its uh, beginning, so to say, um, like around 2000, 2018 or so, where we, uh, the, the team of curators who were thinking that uh, it would be uh, interesting to to think about this new decade and that we will go in yeah. 2020s and uh, at the same time we are an institution that holds uh, has big holdings of 
historical uh, material, historical uh, artists, positions, and so on. And so we were interested to make a bridge between this uh, of 100 years. Uh, and I was uh, asked by the colleagues to focus on this. It was a little bit uh, clear that I would focus on this, uh, uh, take this job, so to say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also because I'm a, I'm a, quite familiar with our whole, we have the big holdings of Dada and Surrealist yes, artists. Yes, in Zurich, so, of course, yes. Yeah, and, yeah. so the, I mean the Dada movement uh, experienced its spring in, in 2016 in Zurich and actually last last until mid of the 20s so my my first idea was really to think what happened with this dadaist people and artists that was so a little bit the core because i wanted to really work with our holdings first of all and then go, spread out who else i would like to consider and and i my my the drive of my thoughts was also what is still visible in our world today. I mean, what what is still considered as contemporary of of the heritage of the twenties, and there are a few notions that are important in the or essential in the concept is uh, the role of in society. Some roles shifted, like women had a new form of visibility, uh, yes. mean, had new rights and new uh, political uh, sovereignty. Yes, and, and so this was one thing also, uh, I mean, on a, the level of fashion and also on, on clothes and also, I mean, this was a symptom of the changes in society where how people then dress. Just even like and trousers so and, and dresses that allowed you to move and didn't require you to wear as much constrictive underwear. Exactly. So uh, it was clear for me that I wanted to look how this change, uh, this essential change that we are still, or hope, I mean, positive change. Oh yeah, but by this I also want to say, it was really important for me, and I think Petra was uh, caught by this, uh, is that I was really, interested to give visibility to the visionary moments in this decade because of course you cannot consider everything and of course there are also problems in the decade of the 20s yeah. but i wanted to focus also how it was the first decade of polit uh, of democratization of societies you know i mean democracy democracy was not really a political a political normality mm. before the 20s so and uh, well so i said fashion or the generals and also architecture and design so that's uh and a, a, a further thing is of course music and yes. but music is a bit difficult to exhibit in a, in a visual <laughs> a space for visual art so i i tried to find artworks and artists visual artists working with music but not be too dependent of especially in corona times it's difficult with all yes. these uh, earphones and so mm -hmm. so and the, the mm -hmm. one very important notion also was uh, is in this, this project how people in general felt about their body okay. and what role the dance ex expressive dance modern dance 
what happened in this? Because these people like Gret Paluka or um, Valeska Gerhardt, um, Josephine Baker, of course, they really changed how we look at, at bodies and how we feel in our own body. Yes, and there's this a wonderful kind of, I guess now we kind of, we take it for granted that things about dancing, the fact that you dance on your own and you move in the way that you want to move and it's kind of people can be in a club and someone can be doing the jitterbug in one corner and someone can just be kind of throwing themselves around the room and nobody really kind of questions it. But as you say, that was that would have been incredibly radical at the time and... You know, I mean, there were these kind of tea dances and dating things, weren't they, where you just, it was basically about touching someone for a bit and then taking a step back. It's really, really fascinating. Yeah. And um, and then, of course, the desires that come from that and how you act on them are so key to a lot of how we live our lives now. I wanted to ask you a bit about how you structured the show as well, because I was reading through the sections um, that I have here and you start with moving on from the tra trauma of the war. Then you move on to new roles, gender roles, new models of society, new ways of seeing, which is very interesting because I guess it was a time of cultural exchange, the beginning of cultural exchange. The fashion, work and leisure, new notions of the body, as you say, about dance, and then lust. Um, why did you put the show together like this? Why end on lust? End on what? Sorry. Lust. <clears throat> lust. Oh, lust. I'm lust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Oh, I think, oh, why? Okay, maybe we can start. Uh, Petra, Petra even went much further than that. I just want to give in one, one uh, uh, thought about that is... Yeah. Um, the the yeah the central experience of an exhibition is so much the drive of our own <laughs> uh, why we want to make uh, visitors uh, yeah I mean especially now that we are so living remote and. Um, don't really have the possibility of collective experience and so on and also um, yeah in a way our, our <laughs> currently our body is a little bit a problem for society we have to be <laughs> on distance with everybody and so on so um, we for me it was personally even even though the, the show was conceived much before Corona, this was a possibility to to enlighten a little bit the whole pressure we are on now, and it's a little bit—it's not exactly the most <laughs> euphoric time, but um, it was important uh, uh, to me and Petra to bring in this this longing of experiencing lust, and which these artists that you can admire at the end of the parkour so and especially this was the case in Zurich it's a little bit different or it's maybe similar but it's less strict in the parkour I think in Bilbao but Rashid Johnson has a very who is actually an Afro-American artist so much speaks 
on the one hand, our contemporary language and addresses problems we have and, and visions and, and uh, how do you say, hopes we have nowadays. But he is really, he's so much, I mean, you can very much refer to the aesthetics of the 20s in his body language. So, mm. yeah. That's exciting. Mm. And Kenko, what do you think? Yeah, I'm, I absolutely agree with you. And there is something that people um, are not aware of, that uh, there were a lot of progresses in the 20s and um, <clears throat> they got lost on the way, on the, in the war and so on. And, and after uh, the war, everybody who did something, they thought, ah, this is absolutely new. <laughs> For example, transsexuality, it, it, it all existed. And, and for example, also um, <clears throat> women, uh, they made uh, surgery, no? Yeah. Plastic surgery that you cannot imagine and you think, why? You know um, why that comes from the, from the war, no? No. Because um, the, the men came back and they were mutilated, so they had to, to find a way to, to restore that. And the women saw that and they, and they thought, oh, we can try too. Yeah, and it's um, but it's these ideas. I feel like that's such a, a thing of our time of this of the twenty twenties is this myth busting of what's new and what's not, and a kind of lifting the lid on how the dramatic events of the last century created some real um, misconceptions about history. And then I think this the this the 2020s is partly there seems to be a lot of trying to rebuild these the more radical modes of thought that were that existed pre the first world war second world war. Yeah. So yeah, that's 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 exact. So that that if you know, I mean, it's it's a quite it's maybe you can say it's a coincidence, maybe not, that some of the some of the the values that we are reconsidering now, and in some cases it's really disturbing, like democratic values are reconsidered the fact of of not only binary binary sexuality, but uh, you know, I mean, that there are gender is not something about men and women it's about mm. uh, about many other things yeah. also the way also the the notions the, the, the question how we want to live and how we want to work that this is our own decision and not something of a, a neoliberal only or, or, or that we we have need to reflect on if it's if we want to be in a neoliberal logic or not uh, you know like the 20s are, is the beginning of uh, uh, the, the chain production and the mass production uh, mass production uh, goods yes. for consumer consumerism, and the, the, we think now very critical. Some people think very critical about that, but not everybody. There is always the the, the, the the positive and also the critical energy about that in societies. Yeah, and, and I don't speak only about. So, so the, the 
we of we I, I would say Petra and, and I focus on the visionary positive effects of that time. Okay. And by this we want to make a little bit clear the message today. Hey, these are the things that we take for granted, as I said before, but we should also defend this. These yes. are really if, uh, values that other people before us had to fight for and we should not, it would be sad to lose them. Absolutely, 100%. And just to end on, I wondered if either of you had a kind of a favourite or key work in the exhibition that you think really exemplifies this. Petra, please start. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking about another thing, I'm sorry. Um, the favourite, your favourite work? Yes. The favourite work? Ah, this is always the question. <laughs> I think it's impossible okay. to, to answer that. Yeah, especially in especially in a group show, it's a little yes. bit unfair for the other <laughs> artists. Yeah, but, sorry. Uh, but maybe a, maybe as a yeah, you know, as there are some icons. I think the 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 image on the catalog cover of this clownesque dancer. Yes, she has not a top model uh, statue, and so. And she, but she brings with this tender and her charisma so much. It's so much opening our mind and look and having to enjoy how this person enjoys also herself. And this is for me charismatic. And she is not a, a for most of the people not so famous. So yeah. um, Valeska Gert is her name, and I think. Yes, this can she can be an icon for or, or um, how do you say um, uh, it stands for for many people at that time, so to say. Wonderful, yeah. wonderful. Thank you, and um, we will um, tweet out uh, that image with the show so everyone can see what um, you're referring to, describing for us there. Um, thank you both. Petra and Catherine so much for joining me today I really appreciate it I think in another time I would probably have come to Bilbao um, <laughs> to see yes, the show or come to Zurich yeah so maybe at you some can point always come to Bilbao. <laughs> they'll let me out <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but maybe it's very you come from the UK yes yeah this is very difficult now yeah absolutely but you have time until September 19th, so... Yeah. Hopefully then, you. yes, exactly, until there September. <laughs>
Someone should do something. What about the bats? Yeah, like a wealthy billionaire should. Is this like, about go Batman again? No, I was actually thinking about Bill Gates. Your obsession with him is weird. It's not about the Dark Knight. <laughs> Inura, 
You need to stop putting your faith in extremely privileged white men. The Batman uses his privilege to help people. No, the Batman uses his privilege to weaponize his childhood fantasy and his white savior complex in tights. No, his parents were killed. He tries to stop that happening to anyone. They were innocent victims innocent. who were shot. His father was a billionaire who used his wealth and political connections to eliminate his enemies. He was not innocent. He created a power vacuum, which his son inherited, and uses to cast a shadow over Gotham, frightening everyone. He frightens people for a reason, uses fear as a weapon, because when he was young, he fell into a cave and got scared and, and learns it's from- The legacy and cycle of violence. Any decent psychology student will tell you that a high proportion of abusers were victims of abuse. Batman is abusing civilians. What? Yet he got scared, and so he scares. Psychological trauma 101. The thing is, he's aware, he actually knows all this, and still he carries on with billions. Billions. No, he's more nuanced A than A billionaire, you know. Hmm. To make that much money? Do you know how many people his father must have exploited? Uh, his boots on the neck of every citizen. Instead of funding public health programs that focus on rehabilitating criminals and crime prevention, better education for children and after-school programs for the at-risk ones. His son swings around in leather, beating up the poor or intellectually disabled who were driven to crime. Yes, but fair. And, and the only reason why he lets half his face show is so police officers know he's a white man. No, no. Because if Bruce Wayne was Barack Williams, he'd have been killed a long time ago. I... I yeah. I never saw it like that. Bruce Wayne would not help. No? No. This is his fault. What? The virus. Well, no, he's not real. But if he was, right, if the virus was in the comics, he still wouldn't help. So Gotham is a nickname for New York. So if it happened as it did in real New York, then yeah, prob probably not. Fuck. Fuck him. Fuck Batman. Batman? Yeah. No, you mean Bruce Wayne? Him too. He's supposed to be able to help. It's supposed to... All those comics promised that if... What? In comics, they promised. Batman? Yes! The promise was, should one fall into a cave of bats? Should one be engulfed by hundreds of beaten wings? Should one be beaten, scratched, or bitten? One would emerge half human, half invincible enough <laughs> to sharpen are. fear down to a tight toothed weapon with which to gnaw the criminal urban underworld, down to poppy nothings protecting us all. <laughs> what are the you promise about? was should an animal's essence seep into a child? Knowing what damage loose power brews, he would accept himself as host, his body a fleshy petri dish to guide its mutation to goodness. Instead, the promise turned ravenous. Yeah, I, I'm Left yeah. from host to host, country to country, blood to blood, its million teeth chewing through our simple lungs. We closed down our offices, it hung on our clothes. We fled from cities, it clung to our cars, we stayed in bed. It came for our dreams, a curdled crown, a rank coronation, a crude corroding of our inner sanctums. Our public spaces, our minute planning, our mapped out futures, horoscopes and forecasts, the dark parts of star charts, 
all emptied out to an assiduous stillness, the promise gorging on our numbed lives, our startled terror. And when the promise retreated, it left its fangs in disguise, its claws in our pockets, its foul breath huffed between us in shocking lines, its warning to return should we seize vigilance to claim more from the survived. What if I made Mrs. Death up? Is Mrs. Death real? Where are you when I need you, Mrs. Death? I jump on the bus heading eastbound. It is dead quiet and empty upstairs. I sit down and lean to let my forehead touch the glass and I watch the city from above. The window pane is cool. There is frost and snow on the dome of the roof of Madame Tussauds and I exhale slowly and empty my lungs and my breath fogs up the window and then I suddenly cry. And once they start, the tears won't stop. Hot tears on my cold cheeks and the cool glass. There is a hurt and a pain in my chest. I feel broken and I don't know what time or day it is, and I don't know where I am. I am guessing it is time for me to go mental in Doolally Town. The doctor has arranged to send me for further evaluation. She thinks I'm developing bipolar. I looked it up, and I found out that bipolar, and hormone imbalance, and PMT, and menopause, and being an empath, and being a human who gives a flying shit, all share similar symptoms. Mood swings, hypersensitivity, restlessness, insomnia, extreme highs and extreme lows, suicidal thoughts, restlessness, catastrophizing, and crying alone on buses. The world is in chaos. The earth is in climate emergency. There has been another shooting. This time, a racist, white supremacist, Islamophobe, burst into a mosque, all guns blazing. We should all be crying on buses. What is wrong with everyone? I am not catastrophizing. This is a fucking catastrophe. That doctor thinks I might be bipolar. And every time I think about that word, bipolar, I start crying again. Look at me. That's me, biracial, bisexual, bigender, and bipolar. That's my labels and my boxes. That's me. I'm the one you can see all alone crying upstairs on the bus. I am crying because I'm afraid. I'm crying because this is probably the saddest and loneliest bus ride ever. I'm crying because maybe I am a bit mad. And maybe I am crying because you aren't crying with me right now. Because you just aren't mad enough.
operator, which service please? Lullaby makes me cry Cause it's already morning listening to Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. If you want to join in on the socials, we are on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. It is at Roaring Twenties Radio and the Twenties is 20S. So please join in with your thoughts, your recommendations, your suggestions and your comments. We're very excited here today. We've got Joelle Taylor and Ollie Spleen. Welcome again to our show. It's so good to see you. So good to see you. It's great to be here. So how have you been? How has lockdown been? Have you been able to find uh, creativity? Have you been okay? I I was lucky in that I had an album ready to release uh, beforehand, which was... uh, for uh, 20 years on from my hospitalisation with a- HIV, AIDS-defining com- complications. I didn't know you could recover from AIDS. I, if I'd have died then, I'd have died of AIDS. So I had this album ready and didn't know that I'd be releasing it under the shadow of another epidemic altogether. So um, it was good, good time. I'm not going to say good timing. <laughs> <laughs> but it worked out OK. I was at my sister's and there were lots of animals to look after, so I felt like I had a purpose and... Uh, mm. 
and I got through it. You know, I know it's been a lot harder for, 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 for many other people. Yeah, I think similarly I was um, writing two books over that time, so I knew I was going to be writing Kanto and other poems. I've also got to finish The Night Alphabet, and I, I was exhausted. Mm. I'm not saying, like, same as you, I'm not saying lockdown, the pandemic, was a good thing, but it, it felt like it gave me a moment to return to myself and become a lot more introspective with my work, um, mm. a lot more self-reflective. Even though I was writing about what is essentially a huge party, mm. I did it in a kind of um, monastic way. Mm. Yes, yes, that whole slowing down mm. and checking in with yourself is definitely something I think we've a lot of uh, creative people have had to do um, over the last 12 months. OK, I'm going to ask you some questions now that are kind of the kind of questions that people always ask authors and artists, but I hope you'd, you'll bear with me. So when you're making your work, um, I know your work off by heart, obviously, where we've gigged together, performed together, I've known you for many years. I'm wondering if you ever have an audience in mind when you're making your work and has that audience changed um, in these divisive and, and brutal and scary times? Yes. Um, I, I always write with an audience in mind. I know a lot of serious poets say you mustn't do that, you must write for writing's sake, but for me the purpose of poetry is connection and a, a poem is a bridge, it's this empathetic bridge between people and between ideas. So writing this book, I was not necessarily thinking about a poetry audience, but more my people, my family, LGBTQ family, mm. working class, sorry, working class book as well, so it's rooted in that history. Um, uh, because it's, it's about filling people with themselves. It's about kind of inspiring a, a strong dynamic between performer and audience, you know. Mm. I often think about um, speaking to a younger self, you know, um, because that way um, I, I can connect with um, the kind of things I would have liked to have heard that might have been a help when I was younger. So I think of my nieces, I think of those people that look up to me who are also um, um, part of the queer uh, family. A lot of my nieces are, not all of them, but um, but um, when I... Uh, I try and you know say say a lot of the things I might have liked to have heard myself when I was mm. less certain of of things absolutely a book is so many things you know sometimes you open a book and it's a hole or a portal and you fall down but this this one I wanted to be a mirror and mm. I think when we were growing up particularly myself in the late 70s and 80s when it was mm. literally illegal to be queer and it was a lot more sort of overt violence mm. I used to hitch to Manchester to stand in this bookshop grassroots books just to look Mm. Uh, 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 people like me the words yeah. like that so I think it's a really important part of the work we do Yeah I almost didn't believe that other gay people existed because I was 10 when uh, Clause 28 came in Section 28 which was Thatcher's uh, legislation which made it illegal to even talk about um, gay people even in a neutral uh, way at school um, but so it was considered promoting homosexuality it was literally mm. illegal throughout the whole time I was at school so when my sister said something like Walt Whitman, the poet, was, was gay, I was like, surely not. Gay, what, what, no one's talking about this, so it can't be true. Mm. And then I felt like I was the only person in the world with my thoughts. Yeah. It was really difficult, really there was, horrible There was times. a real sense of exile, I think, for a lot of us who aren't city-based, who weren't from mm. London. Um, and we came here to find ourselves and to find each other. But we also, I came mm. here because I lost my family. Mm. And you came out as gay, that was like, it was apocalyptic, mm. you know. Yeah, and the AIDS epidemic, everything mm. in the newspapers was just negative uh, negativity and, and, and a lot of 
Yeah, just just awful, just awful times. Just but the flip side. So I'm older than you, about ten years older. So I was mm. on the Section Twenty Eight march in Manchester, which oh, was. Oh, thank you. Was, <laughs> I appreciate uh, that. Uh, you know, don't thank me. We had an amazing time. It was absolutely <laughs> sordid. It was incredible. It was incredible. Um, uh, I can't remember what I was going to say about that. <laughs> but um, you know, um, oh yeah, that was it. That. It was a time of great resistance and uprising mm. and rebellion, and the LGBT community was one. There was yes. a real sense of us coming together, protecting one another, and it's a sense I feel that we've lost, mm. you know, which is another reason I wanted to write the book, is to remind us that, you know, when we come together, we're very strong. Yes, we shouldn't be complacent now that we've got, you know, equality in marriage and, and, and other things. It doesn't mean that there still isn't a struggle. Yes, absolutely. That's the whole thing with, you know, you've seen the memes around Pride. Mm. So just about every corporate organisation's got a rainbow flag. Yeah. They've got a rainbow flag here, but then their businesses in the Middle East, which support the, yeah, the killing of homosexual yeah. men, mm. you know, and the imprisonment of lesbians. So it, it's a kind of strange mm. time. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I'm just absorbing everything you said. I mean, it's like I could just listen to you two talking for ages. It's just brilliant. It's just brilliant to see you and to hear you talking. So just a, a really sort of basic kind of question here, probably one you've been asked be uh, lots before. Um, who were your influences? Who were your heroes? You just described um, hitchhiking to this bookshop. Do you remember who any of those authors were or, or music-wise, who, who sort of really influenced you? I mean... Uh, to, be, to be so brave as well, uh, hey? Yeah, I mean, for me, um, Spare Rib was a huge thing and um, it might sound like quite a, a kind of... A kind of shallow mag. Well, it wasn't shallow. It's, it, it was the first magazine where there were women with no hair, you know, and no makeup on, who kind of looked like me, talking about things that were not about being lesbian, but surrounding. It, you're allowed to be human, you know, not just your sexuality or your gender, but a full and rounded human. Um, so, I mean, I loved the work of uh, Leslie Feinberg. Stone Butch Blues was a really influential book. Um, Adrian Rich, all that poetry really sustained mm -hmm. me. Sue Fruman, people don't talk about, who's um, a lesbian playwright, and I was like 16 when Sue Fruman's show came to Bake Up in Lancashire, and there was about three people in the audience, mm. I was one, like gibbering because it was about lesbians. <laughs> <clears throat> and that was absolutely trans transformational. Mm. Well, uh, I've, I've, the other thing I, with uh, Clause 28 was that, you know, not talking about sexuality at all at school, and then in the e evening you'd put on top of the pops and literally everyone was gay, like <laughs> Boy George <laughs> and Eurasia, the Pet Shop Boys, exactly. and um, Jimmy Somerville, who I've uh, who, who DJed at one of my earliest gigs and became a friend for, for a time, and he inspired the opening track on Night Sweats and Fever Dreams. Um, so there was this real... Um, disconnect between the, the what the the absence of of talk about homosexuality even existing and and seeing it uh, in the culture and the music which i think mm. you get which was which was more rich uh, then than than it seems to be now as as far as the literary side my dad was was a fan of the beats he he was uh, he was a, a quite a couple of generations older and um, an aspiring writer ended up writing for Jackie magazine but he did model himself on Jack Kerouac in the 50s when he was young. 
but he used to say he he went through a period of being homophobic, which um, we made up um, before before he passed away. Um, but he used to say, "Oh, um, I, I used to love that Jack Kerouac till I found out he was bisexual. Couldn't read his books after that." Wow. And he said, um, "Naked Lunch was the one book that he wouldn't have on the shelf." So of course I had to read it. <laughs> that, <laughs> book, that book is a life changer. That's the yeah. most extraordinary piece of work. Yeah, I actually he did point me in, in the direction of a lot of things that he was just disapproving of and. It made me gravitate towards them. But later on, it was uh, Rambo and Walt Whitman and James Baldwin and um, and uh, and people like that. Uh, Oscar Wilde uh, probably goes without saying. But Marvellous, marvellous. Yeah, all right, wonderful. So basically, we have next up, we, um, we have a track by Ollie. And uh, would you like to introduce this song by yourself? Uh, this is the first uh, single from uh, from Still Life, the the album which will be coming out next year, and it's called The Garden. Okay, here's The Garden. Once I dreamed of a garden whose fountains brimmed with wine, whose emerald Pastures roll with fruit on every vine. Who swung a wild as ivory? Whose harvest rides sweet? For all around these beauties crown exquisite things. A great future stretch before me And I ran and reached each goal And my soul was high on dreaming And my heart knew only love A great future stretch before me
Now the poison's my addiction So basically, yeah, on the 12th of June, next Saturday, it's the five-year anniversary of the Orlando Massacre. Um, and I was contacted last summer by a production company in LA who'd followed a group of LGBTQ activists. So they went on a road trip from LA to Washington, D.C., with the aim of putting on a rally called Disarm Hate. Um, they had no real uh, experience of political organisation. They didn't really have any great hopes for it. Um, but a production company decided to make a documentary following them on this road trip from LA to DC. Thousands and thousands of people turned up at the rally. It was an incredible event. It was it was phenomenal what they achieved. Um, and basically, the, uh, a music producer who'd written the soundtrack contacted me and said, I've made an album with clips from the documentary layered over my music. Would you be up for releasing it? And I said, I would, but what I, because we're a poetry label, what I would like to do would be to put in a funding bid and commission 16 of the world's leading LGBTQ poets to write a response, and then the album intersperses between interview clips and poems in response. The first bid was unsuccessful. I tweaked it a bit, rang the Arts Council, said, rang the arts council and said, what are you doing? <laughs> the, second, <laughs> the second bid was successful. Um, and yeah, these poems are just incredible. I'm so humbled and and, uh, and honoured and proud to be releasing this. It's really important for me that my label, Nymphs and Fogs, um, documents these times and creates a space for people to respond and resist. Um, and this album is called We Will Keep On. It's it's incredible. It's coming out on 2LP Gatefold Vinyl later in the summer, but it's going to be out on download on the 12th to mark the five-year anniversary of, uh, of the massacre. Um, and the Disarm Hate documentary is on... Amazon and other less tax dodgy streaming sites so you should definitely check that out um, but we're going to have a couple of clips from it um, the first one I want to play is a poem by Emmanuel Xavier who is a leading LGBTQ activist and also of Latinx heritage, uh, Puerto Rican heritage specifically because 90% of the victims of the Pulse uh, Orlando shooting were of uh, Latinx heritage and in particular Puerto Rican heritage so it was vital for me that Emmanuel um, was on this album, I was honoured when he accepted it, and this is uh, his poem, which is called Pulse. Pulse for Omar Mateen. We will keep on smiling from the dance floor, and we will keep on smiling from the bar, and we will keep on loving without limits, and when we do, we promise you we will not do it in fear from faiths which hate us, or concealed from spouses only wed for appearances, while living in denial. Yes, you may think it's a sin, but we promise whatever God you pray to, his or her, their only mistake is not those who find ecstasy in the music, truth in their gender, or love in one another, but those who slaughter, silence screams regardless of language, especially those who murder by the dozens and attempt to harm even more. You claim not to have a problem with black people, yet you left us all brown like you, strange fruits scattered on the dance floor. We will keep on smiling, and we will do it the same way all of God's children do, even as they keep trying to take away our rights or sending us back to other countries. This is our America, too. We promise we know hatred, white supremacy, and bombings, too. 
Yet we will never forget love is love is love. A family can come together to heal. A beautiful smile can emerge from a photograph for years to come. Your bullets will never erase our memories. We will keep on smiling. We will keep on loving in spite of you. Service to Carnoustie. Have your tickets ready, please, you cunts. 
Hello and welcome back to Roaring Twenties Radio. Uh, my name's Emma Rose and um, I'm here with Selena Godden and uh, I am just about introducing a uh, conversation I had with Osman Yusufzada a couple of months ago now about his work in Birmingham. He's designed a wrap for the bull ring in Birmingham. So basically it's this huge thing that you see um, the infinity pattern that you see as you pull in and it just well, it dominates the skyline of Birmingham. If you know the city, you'll know what I mean. It's enormous. Um, he is from Birmingham and um, he started or was instrumental in starting the migrant festival there and he has this kind of history with the place he is just this kind of polymath he does his fashion label Osman which people will know and he has a book coming out with Canongate in autobiography next year and um, he uh, also does a lot of poetry filmmaking and he um, makes art as well so I'm just going to play you a clip of our conversation so you can find out a little bit more about Osman and a little bit more about the project in Birmingham, the Migrant Festival. And yeah, here we go. Hi, Osman. Welcome to the show. Uh, Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Yeah, so happy we could get you on. Very much enjoyed coming to see Infinity Pattern in Birmingham now a few weeks ago. But I wanted to ask you firstly about that. How did all of that come about? Um, I kind of it took um, a couple of years. I think it was a really long, and then the pandemic actually really um, sort of stalled a few things basically along the way. Um, but it was um, it was a competition that Icon and Selfridges had actually um, orchestrated. So there was renovation works to happen to get the building ready for um, the Commonwealth Games and. So what they really wanted to do was um, to actually find a, um, a way to really to, to use this kind of a new facade and create a new facade for it. So it was an international competition. They had they kind of approached five artists and each of them were asked to actually um, submit a proposal and then it was a long waiting game and then from five it came down to three and then from three it was two and then uh, then you kind of like then you waited forever and then it kind of finally sort of I mean the homeboy actually won so yes. that was kind of quite I <laughs> was quite nice actually it was quite nice that it was me that I kind of grew up in Birmingham but I live in London now and it was kind of it's a kind of monumental. It's probably the most important building in the whole skyline, Absolutely. and it's one of yeah, and it's one of the few future systems buildings in the world, really. And it just it looks as you pull into Birmingham, it's just there. You see it, and it's beautiful, and it just is. It's kind of very uplifting kind of pattern, and very bright, and it, you can't miss it. No, you, can't. you what, definitely. No, no. <laughs> but but um, and it's just it just is such a kind of balm for the eyes. It's lovely. But what does it feel like as a kind of someone who grew up locally to pull into your hometown and see this thing? I mean, I think I'm forever having an imposter syndrome anyway. So it's never really you can have to actually pinch yourself many times thinking, yeah, what? <laughs> I'm Boston <Bursal> Heath. <laughs> like. Um, <laughs> Kind of thing. So for for those who don't really know Borsalif, it's kind of like 
it's a cool but grim part of actually Birmingham. Um, it's the hands off of actually the the north of um, the south of actually Birmingham. So the hands Hansworth is north um, Birmingham, and then it's the other sort of like migrant or immigrant kind of hub. And um, when I was kind of growing up, it was one it was one of the biggest prostitute in the 80s and 90s, one of the biggest prostitute sort of districts in um, the whole of probably, I think, Northern England, I think. I mean, the whole of England. I mean, I think it was called the... I mean, I think, remember, there's a title. I was, like, doing some research recently, and it was, like, the wickedest road in Birmingham, which actually had 450 prostitutes Oh, my goodness. Like, so I don't know who went around counting these prostitutes. Yeah, I know. But, but anyway, there was a road that actually, it was a bit like a mini Amsterdam where women would sit in um, um, in their front windows in, in kind of like semi-revealing or reveal or night clothes or negligees and against these sort of like um, prim curtains. So it's like this... So as adolescent boys, kind of like boys would kind of like go around actually peering into these windows. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it must have been cut. It sounds very kind of filmic in a way. It's quite surreal. Yeah, no, it is kind of quite, uh, it was really quite surreal. I think, you know, you're, A, you're kind of, I think you're on the wrong side of track. So that automatically always has this kind of like nose up against the window and you're looking from somewhere else and in. But then there's also when you look inwards, there's a sense of community and actually sense of belonging as well. What is kind of quite sad, it, they did, people have left. So like, you know, the Irish community left, the kind of, the Afro-Caribbean community left, the Hindus and the Sikhs actually left. And now it's very much like the Muslim enclaves where you kind of like see as... They're kind of real, the ghettos of the north to some extent, where it's a very inward-looking community. And and if you read the Daily Mail, it does kind of class it as the jihadi, <laughs> the jihadi capital of uh, England. So it's um, it's a really quite an interesting area. I mean, I mean, I, I kind of left, and then I I kind of would go back intermittently, and then I the last three years I've been going back really every weekend. I mean, part. Uh, my dad died and then I've been looking after my mom. So it's been this kind of real like rediscovery as well. And so there's been many kind of like, it's this kind of, I feel like I'm, I'm actually later on in my life. I mean, I kind of ran away and then I kind of, I kind of reconciled and I've come back and I feel like I'm kind of like living, being half a Birmingham, half a Londoner. That's nice, it's nice. And then this kind of huge statement of your return as well. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> and then there's an art trail within Selfridges, isn't there? There's, there's You've got poetry and photography. Um, do you have... Yeah, no, I, I kind of... I'm still actually a little bit delayed in um, a couple of stuff that I'm supposed to have made and a series of, like, works on paper that I'm making. Yeah. Um, but what's in there at the moment is a piece that I which is a series of cooking pots, which was part of my show at the Icon, being somewhere else. And then there's a poem I wrote for a spoken word film that I did is sort of a, a kind of like a love letter to Birmingham, um, looking at, um, I don't know, someone sort of like jazzy actually kind of spliced it very nicely. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's got my spoken word in it. And um yeah, it's kind of quite cool. It goes from actually 
Birmingham city centre down to South Birmingham to Bussell Heath, to some of the kind of like the fabric shops, to well, the curry belt, the sort of the 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 Balti Triangle. So it's kind of quite um, it's quite sort of mosaic as well. Yeah, yeah. And it was kind of and it was done in with alongside Icon or in partnership with Icon. The film was actually done commissioned by Selfridges. Uh-huh. So the film was actually commissioned by Selfridges and we were very grateful to have full creative freedom. That's great. Um, and so we kind of, I found this amazing um, factory in the jewellery quarter that wanted to be part of it. So there, there's just sort of lots of different characters. And yeah. it's also kind of like, I, it's kind of called, I, I too am homegrown, sort of a little bit of a sort of like a tongue-in-cheek of being homegrown something else <laughs> but um but it was just this idea of actually belonging and yeah. really like that multitudes are my own and an infinities to be found and the rest of it so it was a kind of it was nice yeah it's very beautiful very beautiful and then um and i also wanted to ask you about the migrant festival which um is which will have happened by the time this interview broadcasts but this was it was kind of conceptualized by yourself essentially wasn't it it's in its third year now yeah it's in its third year so what i i mean i was very lucky and kind enough to be approached by the icon to have a they approached me to to have a solo at the icon and then they what happened was kind of like they thought that i was going to do something which was probably more kind of garment making or fashion kind of like focused yeah. but then I thought I didn't really want I wasn't really at that point in my career I didn't really want it to kind of like and I had a multidisciplinary practice which had been bubbling and I really wanted to kind of refocus um some of the conversations and I think some some of my frustrations in a kind of very fast world where design especially in fashion that you know it doesn't tend to have I mean, it doesn't stay, it doesn't seem to have meaning. It's very much kind of garbed in a fast-paced, kind of fast fashion kind of world where it's more and more product. And you, if you've got to be part of that system, you've got to actually, it's a very seasonal, seasonal system and it's a very kind of like again and again and again. And so to kind of reckon, and it's something that I've been reconciling with probably, probably very, very fairly, very early on, and so I started a zine um, 2013, um, which is called The Collective. And that was kind of like bringing in together sort of intersections of art, sort of garment making, fashion, tech. So that sort of has been sort of how I've created a community and how I actually kind of found space and do work and have different conversations. And then I was a really great opportunity to to create something sort of ethno-autobiographic, actually a show which was being somewhere else. So, and I, and I find a lot of kind of museums and spaces like that kind of elitist, you know, in a yeah. way that I, I was never, I felt that I could never come there as a kid or I never knew that it ever existed. Mm. And um, um, so it was just kind of a way of actually trying to get many people so I wanted to be activated yes. so we did a four-day kind of event which is called the migrant festival and then I thought yeah let me open some my Rolodex and then I kind of just got lots of people and I said okay 
you're going to do this, you're going to do that. And I couldn't actually brought other people to the table. And so we had like four days of like continuous back to back activity. And yeah. sort of, I think I killed a few people, <laughs> but they <laughs> it killed people who organized it. <laughs> like, but I'm probably used to much working at a much faster and a yes. kind of like a industry Business. pace. Yeah. yeah. Like rather than a kind of like a slower pace. I think that's possible. That's possible. That can do this. And um, so I kind of, we kind of filled it out. We got like the Dakar Art Summit involved. We got um, a film that I made. We got kind of Livia Fur from Eco Age involved. We got sort of other artists involved. We got local artists to do workshops with actually some of the children. Uh, we got like sort of Asian uh, women from South Asia talking about their sort of experience of actually ex exclusion. There was, I mean, it was like a kind of this platform of yeah. like, anyone could come and actually it was like speaker's corner in london somehow Wonderful. Um, but over a four days kind of event and come and listen to me somehow or i want to be involved that's wonderful so, yeah so that was really the start of it and then i kind of like and then they then i think the following the next year i think they had someone else i think hugh Locke actually did something with them that year. It coincided with his, with his exhibition. And then I think it was the pandemic. And then they did, they did something with Harun Mirza. Mm. And then and then the following this year, I think there were a few other plans as well. Yeah, it's super exciting. And it's kind of it obviously met a need in Birmingham because it's gained this momentum since. Yeah. Yeah, which is really... I think there's this spaces just need to kind of open up to people with ideas and they need to just kind of like say, and I think that's something that I've really kind of learned to actually much be kind of, there's a whole kind of like everything is about ego at the end of the day. I don't know if you want, and that kind of like that is just being the ability to be a bit more kind of like open and who kind of like puts value on something or not. And I think, yeah, you know, we're not living in a kind of, it's not a complete utopia world because the world isn't really structured like that or like complete equal access and there's lots of barriers to entry for many different people but I think the, the more momentum or the more change that can actually happen through actually opening out spaces is something which is really quite key for me Roaring Twenties Radio the show for the 2020s Roaring for art, culture, books, poetry and activism with Selena Gordon, Emma Rose Abrams and Matt Abbott. Find us every month on Soho Radio. You can find previous episodes as podcasts and social media links at anchor.fm forward slash Roaring Twenties Radio and the Twenties is two zero. I'm here in the studio with Musa. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's Real lovely pleasure. to have you. It's lovely to have you. So, where do we start with you? My goodness. So, how do you've you've put out three books this year? Yeah, yeah. Good times. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely extraordinary. Um, so let's start. Let's start with the the memoir. Um, the let's start with one of them, the Eton College memoir. How was that to write that and uh, to publish that with Unbound? Okay. So first of all, shout out to Unbound. They were incredible. The, the Good Immigrant and people asked why I did this book with them because they were like, oh, I should come with a bigger publisher. It would have been a bigger book. And I was like, first of all, it did just fine in terms of reviews and sales are good. But the real thing is this, it was creative choice. I did not trust, quite frankly, a large group of people 
to put this story out in the way that I wanted to tell it. I thought a lot of people would want the kind of sensationalism, you know, name and shame, name and shame, you know, you know, the, the Tory politicians who are running this country to the ground who went to Eton. I was like, hang on a minute. They're like, I said, has naming any of these people changed anything? No, everyone knows who they are, everyone knows what they're doing. What you need to do is talk about structures. And this country, this English political discourse is so obsessed with name checking, name dropping. And I'm like, that's just, that doesn't solve anything. We get so caught up in that. We see it with racism. They want to turn it into like a, a pantomime. So what I thought I'd do with this book about Eton was go back in time, read all my school reports, which was really difficult. It's really difficult to be like a 41-year-old yeah, man reliving those years. It was really hard because a lot of that stuff was, you know, a lot of the experiences were good, but a lot of it was quite bleak as well. Um, and the difficulty, I suppose, was, was really just reliving it because there are people that I went to school with who are responsible for much of the current political context. So Rupert Harrison, for example, the year above me at school, Rupert, Sa Rupert Harrison wrote the austerity policy. That eight-year, ten-year austerity policy, he literally wrote it. Mm. Another guy that I know was like, he's head of the, like, the National Audit Office that's basically in charge of like, you know, government savings. But it's like, these people are cutting budgets with no experience of what it's like to be poor. Like, these are people who've never been to... Um, to a bank and got money out and put their hand over the balance because they're too traumatised to see how, much, how little money they've got in the account. Right? They just have no concept of it. And so the book is basically about how people who are interpersonally very pleasant, very nice, nice people in quotes, how nice people can enact cruel policy. So yeah, that's why I wrote the book. It's interesting, I think, um, it's also um, relating also to what happened with Grenfell. It's people running things. Why are they in these jobs? They're not the right people to be in those jobs. Not at all. It's like, obviously, they do the things that they do. They have to take responsibility for it. But it's like, who gave that guy that job? And it's, yeah, it's about why structures, you know, you look at the pol uh, political structures and they filter out people that have experience. You know, you could be filtered out by your accent or the school you went to. You like So many conversations you have where, you know, private school world, not just Eton, but the private school world generally, you're going to a room and be like, oh, where did you go? Do you know so-and-so, so-and-so? And then if you don't go to those, those schools, you're completely excluded from the conversation, right? And the, the thing that, that really struck me about the kind of the, the private school system and how some systems just closed off, we all went to uni, we went to uni, um, and then after uni, a bunch of people got in touch. They're like, oh, do you want to come play football with us on a, on a Wednesday night? Oh, well, I saw, got this list of emails from different people. Haven't seen that person for years. We used to play football together. Let's catch up again. And the really weird thing, this is the weirdest thing about the private school system, I saw all the names, all these email addresses I'd never, I'd never seen before, never heard of these companies. And I Googled them all, and they all had like a single, in these single page websites, like in a one holding page, and they were all hedge funds. All these people from school had obviously like gone to all these hedge funds, all, earning huge amounts of money. And I'm pretty sure a lot of these jobs were not publicly advertised. It was like, I've got a mate who's into this, who's got a bit of capital, a bit of startup money. It's like, it's a completely closed world. And to me, I'm like, Okay, that's one thing, but then like that world is a closed world in finance, which is arguably bad enough. But then it's a closed world in politics too. It's unacceptable. And the weird thing about this is, I was talking to a friend. He said, "Oh yeah, but I know a lot of Etonians, and you know they're, they're very nice people compared to the ones who are in politics." I was like, "Hang on a minute. How many of them speak publicly about this stuff, though? You can be as nice as you like privately, right? Mm -hmm. But where's the outrage? Where's the public outrage? Where are the open letters? Because when an Etonian teacher got sacked for sexism." There was public outcry. There was an open letter from old Etonians going, they shouldn't have been sacked. I was like, hang on a minute. So they're not ashamed of public discourse, right? So why, when it comes to people doing stuff who went to their school, arguably in their name, 
these, these ambassadors this school. There's no public outcry. And I was like, to be honest, they're cowards. I don't give a damn about... The big problem in England is this reliance on a silent, the decent silent majority. Well, speak up. Effing speak up. Otherwise, you're just as bad as them. And that was my thing. That was my challenge to them. And I said, look, trust me, they're going to be silent on this. And they are silent on it. Sorry to get all ranty, but it gets me really angry. Like, do you know, do you know what I mean? No, no, it's not ranty. That's Sil- well oh, said. Thank silent, you. silent majority, silent majority. They're silently yeah. decent. Where, where's, the, where's the public outcry then? Yes. Yeah. 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 And so going on, going with your, your books, the other book that you've done is Striking Out, which yeah. is a children's novel written in collaboration with and based on the life of Ian Wright. So how did that come about? I mean, that's fascinating. Oh, wow. What yeah. a beautiful job that must be. Oh, it's been yeah. incredible. It's been an absolute pleasure. Let me just shout out Ian Wright. Amazing human being. Mm-hmm. An, an amazing human. So I did this podcast called Stadia, which you mentioned earlier, and um, we started it up. And he started reading my stuff, actually, a few years ago uh, on Twitter. Right my political essays, my stuff on race, he really enjoyed it. And so I wrote him a DM after a couple of years of him reading my stuff. And I said, look, like we've got this football podcast and we have a, our thing, we're a very small podcast, but we have a kind of, we've got beer nub on it because no one really interviews footballers about the craft of what they do. Well, they mm. do, but not enough, right? Not enough, especially not in the English context, I think. We want to talk about the art of goal scoring specifically, like the art of finishing. So his agent was like, he got super excited about this. He normally turns down most things, but he's excited. So he went and interviewed him at the Emirates, then watched a game with him, Arsenal against Victoria, Europa League, I think it was. And we kind of just became friends, like just chatting, geeking out on football. Um, a couple of years later, he had his own podcast on um, The Ringer FC, which is alongside us. We're on the same sort of speed uh, feed on Spotify. And then his agent was like, at some point, we want to write a book off the back of his Desert Island Discs because people really got into it. We want to write his life story. And I was like, actually, people know Ian's life story. Like, everyone knows the details. What we should do maybe is, why don't we place Ian Wright as he is now, 57-year-old, grandfather, uncle, mentor to younger footballers. Let's put the real Ian Wright in a fictional situation where he mentors a young black boy who reminds him of himself. So we had them meet by chance in the the novel. Um, And then Ian basically mentors him. And the way it came about, really, the way we wrote it was we kind of just talked out the plot. I was like, this has to be a hero's journey, right? Hero's journey, traditional hero's journey, meets mentor, loses mentor, separation, and then reconnection, ordeal, trial, triumph. So we just talked out this plot and we're like, almost like a cinematic type thing, like Black Boy and Hackney, Ian Season playing on Hackney Marshes, and that was it. And it was, working with Ian was an absolute joy because he's... um. Some, I, I said to, someone said to me, what's it like working? I said, well, in a different life, he could have been a barrister. His brain is unbelievable. His ability to synthesise. You give him, like, stats before a big match of the day thing. You'll give Ian the stat, like, in the WhatsApp group, and he'll drop it on, like, national TV 30 seconds later, perfectly in context. Like, it's like, a bar- it's like watching a barrister in real time. Like, he's an incredible broadcaster. So, yeah, it was a joy working with him. I That's always, so exciting. I always thought that about footballers is they don't get a great rap when it comes to... Um, they don't have a great rep when it comes to... kind of People don't see them as intellectuals. But in order to strategize like that in real time, you've got to be smart, right? Well, look, here's the thing. No-one calls air traffic controllers stupid. <laughs> and they do the same. Footballers basically are air traffic controllers. That's what they're doing. You're like, you are synthesizing. The way I always compare, uh, compare it is a central midfielder like Xavi or like Pirlo or like Pogba or a strike like Ian Wright is basically like, an, you know, it's like being an air traffic controller while landing your own plane at the same time. You're coordinating all that movement. Like the amount of, how do I say it, the amount of calculations you have to make as an elite footballer in real time are astonishing. 
And I was also really interested, and I was talking to Selena and Matt about this um, while we were waiting for you earlier, having a coffee, and it was like, what was the decision around you writing the book jointly? Mm. Um, was that a conscious thing? Um, how did you come up with the idea about being co-authoring it, basically? It's funny, yeah, because... So Ian had... There was um, a kind of a... There was an option, you know, all this legal stuff. For Ian, sorry, there was, there was an option for a book about Ian's life. And the idea was, I think, that someone would just write it without much input from Ian. Mm. And then we thought, actually, because you're such a kind of prominent person, let's, let's let you f lean fully into that. So they gave me some of Ian's old audio, um, his autobiography, like audio book. And doing the podcast, then I listened to him a lot. So I know what his kind of cadences are. I know what his kind of favourite sort of mannerisms are. And so we really just sort of talked it out and made it collaborative. Because we do the podcast together, we just thought, let's keep it as light as that. Let's keep that process and not kind of overthink it. I think it's very important when you write books not to kind of overthink stuff. Um, and yeah, it just worked. It just worked beautifully in the end. It was really kind of organic, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I love the way you you kind of marry up your writing with the football. It's, it's something that's like, you, they kind of go side in side. If you had to pick, who would win, writing or football? Football. <laughs> yeah, Very because, quick answer. Because football was the first love, like football was there before and it'll be there after. <laughs> I was going to ask actually, on the Venn diagram of interests, football and poetry in particular don't often overlap, but I know they do for you. How early in your poetry journey did you start writing about football? I got hell for it. When I first started yeah. doing it, okay, I um, started writing, performing poetry... Well, I've been writing poetry since I was 10. Yeah. But like when I came back on the scene, 05, and I put out a book about football, and people were like, you like football? Because I didn't talk about it on the scene. They were like, what is this? Like, you've got a football book out. Um, football poetry, I suppose I started writing like 2008. And I got a lot of hate from a lot of people. Really? Yeah, yeah they're quiet now. They're quiet now, but they know who they are. <laughs> Online hate, like sustained abuse. You're trying to subjugate the working classes. And I'm like, hang on a minute. Poetry's like working class. What are you talking about? They're like... And because it was like... I think looking back what it was, I was making, I was making knuckle-dragging, narcissistic men feel something and they hated it. Men hated having to emote about football. They were like, oh, go along, like, shags and birds. Like, that kind, of, that kind of man was reading poetry about football and it was making, and it, they felt afraid. Right. Because they, they're, men like that are afraid of vulnerability. They're terrified of it. And poetry is ultimate vulnerability. But I was like, screw this. I kept doing it. And, you know, 13 years later... Things have come around. Yeah. 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 13 lonely years. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like there's a kind of, um, and I'm not sure what it means. I'm open to waiting to understand what it means. But I feel like, cause I know Matt does a lot of writing around football and I've done some writing about art. My friend has a football magazine, Oof, which is art and football. Oh, wow. And, uh, and uh, anyway segue but he's but what he's doing is really cool but it's also kind of i feel like the boundaries are maybe kind of dissolving a little bit yeah definitely. because um, whereas obviously at one point it was very much it was like a radical act people are ashamed you know it's like something rappers started singing and everyone was like oh my god rappers can't sing it's too emotional it's too whatever it's too and now everyone's doing it mm. everyone's doing it like and they're doing it really well and really is, what you realize is people were afraid they were afraid it might work not that it wasn't good. They were like, oh, football poetry was terrible. No, they didn't think it was terrible, actually. They were afraid that if it worked, everyone would start doing it and they'd get marginalised. And they were completely right. Did they remind me of these people, these haters, these bigots? They remind me of them. I said actually the other day, I had, I had vague sympathy for white supremacists. White supremacists knew the moment they allowed black people into things, 
the creative would just explode and they'd never have it to themselves again. Mm. And I think it's the same with like these creativity crossover, people being brave in their art. People are afraid of it because they know that if it works, they'll be marginalised. And they're completely right. Because mm. where are those clowns now? Those <laughs> yeah. hateful people now, where are they? They're still yabbering around the internet, but they're there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're marginalised now. Yeah. yeah.